tonight's reading is 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is the word of the Lord. We are in a series where we're thinking about what it means to be grateful, what it means to be thankful. And I've been drawn to a couple of texts that we wouldn't normally think of uh, when we think about being thankful. And this is one of them. It's not a text that I've preached on, I think, before in this context. And it's a text in which the Apostle Paul uh, talks about a false teaching that he believes is influencing the churches and keeping them from being thankful. Now, what is the teaching that he is uh, worried about? What is this uh, heresy that he's talking about? Well, he uses some of his strongest language for this false teaching. He talks about uh, deceitful spirits inspiring it. It's the teaching of demons Uh, The teachers uh, are liars who are insincere. They have seared consciences. So uh, whatever this is, it's really dangerous and it's really bad. I don't know if there's another passage that is so severe when it comes to talking about this. Um, Well, we don't get a full explanation of all the the darkness uh, of this teaching. Um, But there's two clues. Uh, These people forbid marriage, they say marriage is bad, and they say certain foods are bad. There's one other place in Scripture that talks a little bit about this similar line, and forgive me, we've somehow our, the mic I usually use has walked off tonight, so uh, sharing space has its adventures. Uh, Colossians 2 Paul says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So, there is this teaching going around in these churches that say you are disqualified if you marry, if you eat certain things, if you don't worship on the right day. And he calls this asceticism, and he says that it doesn't stop in indulgence. Now, what's he talking about there? 
We could spend all night on that. Many books have been written about that. But broadly speaking, he's talking about a worldview known as dualism that comes from uh, Plato. And Plato believed that there was a spiritual world that was good and a physical world that was bad. And uh, if at all possible, you wanted to set up your life in a way that you could spend as much time as possible in the spiritual world. And if you couldn't do that, then you would have to work in the yucky material world. And there was this whole kind of ranking of good stuff and bad stuff. Spirit stuff's good. Material, physical stuff is bad. And it has been creeping into the church ever since the New Testament was, was written. Within a generation, the church split into two classes. You had those who devoted their lives to spiritual things, monks and priests, and those who had to work in the, the world, the, the laity. And, you know, we still hear this language at work in the church. I got a fundraising letter once from a, a crusade where many people had come to Christ and the writer was raising funds for the crusade. And he said, and also a young man who was in law school gave his heart to Christ and decided to instead to go to seminary and enter full-time Christian service. Now, what does that imply about being in law school? <laughs> that it's like part-time Christian service or, you know. There was a book many years ago now that was very popular. It was called Halftime. And it was uh, a lot of wealthy businessmen read it. And the, the bottom line was this. You know, if you, if you really killed it in the business world, you went out in that filthy world, made a bunch of money, and worked your way up. Now the tag was called move from success to significance. And the second half of your life, do something that matters, brother. Go work for a nonprofit and teach kids to read. And the whole premise was that that first half of your life was success, and that was worldly. The second half was significance, and that counts for God. And so you end up with this weird hierarchy of what kind of lives and work matters. And I put together, just for fun, uh, a little ranking here. These are the dualistic job rankings. Um, it's best if you can get martyred. Then, clearly, you please God. Uh, if you fail at that and you're still a missionary, that counts then kind of the helping professions, pastor, teacher, counselor. Social work's up there. Scientists depends. Uh, marketing and sales depends on the product. And then law and anything with money is at the bottom. I mean, how many times have, have you heard, heard a financial planner give a testimony in church about how they're glorifying God that way? Well, when you approach the world dualistically, there are big chunks of the world that you're not thankful for because they are bad, and you can only give thanks for the small category of stuff that is spiritual, spiritual blessings. And Paul says, no, 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 God created, verse 3, everything to be received with thanksgiving. Verse 4, everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if received with thanksgiving. So he, he's saying an attitude of gratefulness, and I'm going to resist attitude of gratitude because it just is so easy to say. We're just not going to go there. Uh, Daryl would, but I can't get away with it, okay? So he's talking about being thankful for every aspect of life, even the most mundane, trivial, boring part of life, not just the spiritual stuff. A movie that I liked and almost no one else did, um, it's called Patterson. 
And it's a little movie about a truck driver or a bus driver. And the bus driver, it's about a week in the life of a bus driver. And he rides his bus and he writes poems uh, in between stops based on the beautiful things he sees on his route every day. And I just thought, you know, that's getting closer there. Because he is seeing beauty and being grateful for, for all things. You know, I've been mentioning you. I've been having these powerful conversations about deconstructing and reconstructing faith with people. And I see a lot of dualistic thinking here. Uh, I'm only spiritual. I'm only worshiping God. I'm only close to God when I'm doing kind of this small approved list of spiritual things. I have my journal out, my Bible open, and my big intercession list. Uh, but what happens when I actually feel very close to God when I am lecturing in my classroom? What happens if I feel very close to God when I'm with a client in my uh, financial planning practice? What happens if I feel very close to God uh, when I'm out in my yard gardening? Well, those don't count because your journal's not open and you're not in your Bible. Part of reconstructing, I think, is starting to realize, yes, be in your Bible, yes, pray. But the whole world can be a place where we meet God. I think dualism comes into play a lot when we talk about wealth. Uh, I hear this a lot uh, in some conversations. A belief that making money is bad, being wealthy is bad. If you have a gift to generate wealth, that is bad. Poverty is more spiritual than wealth. There are a lot of things in the Bible that warn us about wealth. It's true, but there's other challenges when you're poor. And so some Christians, God gives the ability to generate wealth, and instead of giving thanks and using it for God, they feel more guilt about it. The area that, uh, that I think the church has really been affected by dualism is, is how we think about the body, our bodies, uh, and particularly our, our desires and pleasure in the body. If you do a master's in early church history anywhere in North America, you will read a book by a scholar named Peter Brown. It's called The Body and Society. And you will learn how in the first five centuries, the church entirely overturned 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5, and did exactly the opposite. It's a fascinating study. And they took this beautiful vision of, of a holistic world where God is redeeming all of it, and flesh and spirit is all part of God's redemptive plan, and they decided to go right back to dualism, and they said the body is bad, the spirit is good, punish the body to release the spirit, and the poster child of this view is a, is a guy named Simon Stylites, and uh, uh, that's a, a little uh, Instagram vision of him there. And uh, Simon uh, was so ascetic, practiced such rigorous, harsh fasting that the, the monks kicked him out of the monastery and said, go get your act together. He went further in the desert. He decided, I'm going to spend the rest of my life on 20 meters standing. So he did that for a while. He got so popular, people came out and wanted him to pray for him. He said, this isn't painful enough. And then he went literally on top of a pillar about that size and spent like 15 or 20 years, the rest of his life, standing on the pillar. And he was known as one of the great holy men of the, of the ages because 
they felt anybody that could hurt himself that bad must be godly. That's where it all went. And at the and so you see these crazy things in the movies about people whipping themselves with chains and wearing hair shirts and all that stuff. That's where it comes from, this belief that the spirit's good, body's bad, desire is bad, uh, punish yourself. Um, now, at the deepest level, this is affected by the church's view of sex. Sex was seen as bad, evil, sexual desire was bad. And so if you really love God, you'd, you'd marry I mean, you wouldn't marry, you'd become celibate. Now, at this point, it's easy for Protestants to go, oh boy, those Catholics really missed that one, didn't they? Uh, didn't they read this? And it's easy to, to kind of do uh, armchair psychoanalysis and say, yeah, all these sexual abuse candles, we'll see, that's what happens when you deny an unnatural desire. You repress it, it squirts out somewhere else. God, Catholics, doggone it, can't they see? Well, brothers and sisters, Protestants have got our own stuff here uh and and this this is hard to hard to talk about um if i have a i've had a conversation a hundred times if i've had it once uh with uh almost always a christian woman and it goes something like this um pastor i know you thought you were teaching me about sexual purity with all the silver ring thing and all the other things you did with the youth groups. And I know that's what you wanted, but let me tell you what really happened in my soul. You told me that it was bad, 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 bad. And then the day of my wedding, I was supposed to flick a switch and it's good, 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 good. And actually I think sex is disgusting. I hate myself for having sexual desire and you didn't help me at all. And there's a book that's just come out called Pure Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Women and How I Broke Free. And I won't go into all the, the arguments, but she interviews about 100 women who grew up in the evangelical church in the 80s and the 90s and found the church's teaching on sexuality profoundly shaming, impacting them mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Now, she's not writing from faith perspective. She's not trying to reimagine a biblical sexual ethic. I don't agree with her on every point. But the fact is, there are thousands of women in the country today who would say that our attempts to teach about sex damage them profoundly. And if I've had that conversation a hundred times, I've had it a thousand times with young men who struggle with pornography. And in both cases, the shame and the anxiety over the body is, is palpable and damaging. And I wonder, I wonder what would happen when someone's struggling with pornography if the conversation began with something like this. Let's thank God for the beauty and goodness of your sexual desire. What if we started there? Well, I want you to think about this here. Have you rejected a good gift from God 
that God intended to be part of your walk with him instead of receiving it with thanksgiving. You know, really what we're looking at here is, is kind of a, a legalistic structure for dealing with morality. Don't do that, 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 that. It's all bad. Focus on spiritual stuff. It doesn't work. Paul says what we need to be doing is giving thanks. And he, and he says it in three ways. He doesn't spill it out a lot. He says, all things God creates are to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So maybe we start with a rejection of dualism. We start by embracing the belief that God has created all things and we can give thanks for all things when they're used for him and his glory. And, and I know this could be just kind of bouncing off the top tonight, but you, I want you to think this week a little bit about have you rejected as bad something God gave you that he might have intended for good? Maybe your business skill. Maybe your intellect. Maybe your ability to empathize. Maybe your deep emotional connection with others. Are there parts of you that God has created, that God made, that God celebrates, that you have always thought were a curse? Well, then Paul says, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And I know we're good and we're trying to become thankful for the spiritual blessings, for where we see God at work, where God's power and sovereignty are on display, for how God is being revealed in a certain situation. That's all great. But can you be thankful for the meeting tomorrow morning at 9 that bores you to death? Can you be thankful for another sleepless night with a little one? You know, so much of life is mundane, is trivial, is boring, is not exciting, is not worthy of posting on anything. Can you give thanks for that? Can you be like Patterson and find the beauty in that for, for the squirrel? I sat on my porch this week. We have this, some knucklehead animals going and uprooting all our pansies. And I'm having a quiet time on my porch, and this little furball comes out of the tree and just devours a pansy in front of my very eyes. <laughs> kind of like knew I was there. And I had so much joy watching him do that.
last he says, give thanks for all things and make them holy by the word of God in prayer. What on earth could that possibly mean? Well, he can't, he can't be saying there are no ethical boundaries. Anything is good if you give thanks. He can't be saying that. That's not a Christian view. It's got to be in the word of God and prayer. It's got to be within the, the, the framework of the Christian life. It's got to be something you work out in your conversation with God and your desire to please him. That's part of what it means. But I think it also means that you take something mundane and trivial and secular that nobody celebrates and you and God turn it into an altar. That you figure out how to take that spreadsheet tomorrow morning and make it holy through the word of God and prayer. If you spend eight hours tomorrow with a computer screen running numbers and you don't interact with a single other human being, you figure out through the word and God of prayer how to make that day holy. I, I do want to say this as, as we end. Um, and, you know, if you were here last week, this, this, it's hard when you start to hear more about how people have been by the, hurt by the church. It's a little bit like a parent. And when your kids come back and they say, you know, I knew you meant well, but let me tell you how that affected me when you did this. That's really hard to hear. It's really hard to hear. It was hard to hear all those stories in the book Pure about how damaged people have been by the church's attempts to teach sexual purity. And I, I did all that. So we, I was right in the middle of all that. We did all that. We thought we were helping kids. And part of me wants to be defensive and say you don't understand and, and all that. And some of it, Okay. But I, I do want to say this tonight. I just want to end with this. That if your sexuality was not made holy by the word and by prayer through the ministry of the church, if for some reason you feel disgusting when you think about your sexuality, if you feel that sexual desire is an evil, shameful thing. Uh, I'm sorry. And as just one member of the church, I, I apologize. I ask your forgiveness. Please don't do what the writer of Pure did and leave us would you help us reimagine 
through the word of God and prayer, a robust, life-giving, biblical sexual ethic? Could you help us do that? It's one thing to tear something down and reject it. But it's another to build something new in its place. And that's what I'm not hearing a lot of. So I ask your forgiveness for any teaching that brought upon you shame and misery. And I ask you to help us teach a new generation a healthy sexual ethic. Let's pray.